Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Regulators, chapters 10 and 11. Let's start the show. Things escalate quickly for the residents of Poplar Street. Jim Reed, despondent from accidentally shooting and killing Kali Entragian, and pushed by Tack, shoots and kills himself. Steve Ames is wounded by a strange creature in the woods, and Johnny has been shot also. Retreating back to the houses, the group learns more about the relationship between Tack and Seth from Audrey. A long interstitial reveals what happened to Seth in the form of a letter written by Alan Symes an engineer at a mine where Tack has been imprisoned. While a short interstitial may provide a hint to how to tell when Seth has a modicum of control over Tack. Jay, episode 119. Whoa. So if we ignore that uh, one, got a 19? Is that what you're saying? That's what I'm saying. Just think 1,800 episodes from now, we'll be at 1919. Oh. We'll also be about... 300 years old at the rate we're going, but yes. Yeah, it'll be worth it. Totally. (laughs) So Jay, one of the things we discovered when we were planning this episode is after being relatively interested in the main plot, which is what is happening on Poplar Street to the residents there, I think in the last two sections that we've read, I'm starting to become more interested in the backstory and what's happening in the, in the interstitials and the main events of what's happening on Poplar Street have interested me a little bit less. Yeah, I agree. It's it's basically the the B plot is now the A plot. Yeah. And you're right, especially as these interstitials become longer, they sort of take on the feeling of like short stories embedded within this bigger book. And each of them has a slightly different flavor and the one with the one with Alan Symes from the mining company, I love that. His whole section was an entirely entertaining, self-contained story. And I was really into that. And it had a complete arc. And it was great. And I didn't miss or wonder what was going on with the Poplar Street people at all during that time. No, because in fact, not much was going on with the Poplar Street people at that time. After the wrap-up of the last section when there was, you know, these accidental shootings, really this entire section revolved around them taking the dead body of Jim Reed back to the house, figuring out how to get it over a fence, and then all sitting around talking about Seth and Tack, which is all stuff we sort of knew and get much better in Alan Symes' letter, where we learn more about Tack and Seth and what happened out in the mine. And yeah, the Poplar Street stuff really didn't move the story along at all. It was just two longest chapters of not much happening. Totally agree. And I guess what I was getting at a moment ago with the Alan Symes story is that this is like really good writing from King. Yes. All of these interstitials are great. I think each one of them has been better than his writing for the Poplar Street part of this book. The beginning of that where we thought that that was the A plot, where the folks on the, that neighborhood are getting gunned down. It's, it's, it's not bad writing, but it's not as strong as we've seen in other books and other short stories that King has written. But because these interstitials sort of feel like short stories, 
And you and I both agree that most of King's best writing is in his short stories. Mm -hmm. It's no surprise that, that, that these interstitials are like really great parts of the book. Yeah, for me, especially what I like about the Alan Symes interstitial is the voice that Symes has. Mm -hmm. It's got this distinctive clarity to it of a man who's well-educated. He's an engineer after all, but he's working in sort of this blue-collar mining piece. And he's got sort of this folksy, hey, here's how we do things out West and little turns of phrase that makes him a more full character than any of the characters on Poplar Street who really seem to be sort of broadly brushed, right? Like there's mm -hmm. there's the young twins who are handsome and, and do their thing. There's the writer who's had problems with alcohol in the past. There's the long-haired hippie dude and the punk girl. And I couldn't tell you what any of those folks sounds like or anything more about their characteristics other than those big broad strokes. But Alan Symes seems to be a more fully realized character in the little bit we get about him which isn't even him telling us about his life. It's him telling us about what happened to this family. Mm -hmm. But through that story, we learn about what type of person he is, how he's willing to rush into this cave that could fall over at any time to save this boy who he just met a half an hour earlier, about the relationship he has with the father who, who goes in there and how they have this like man-to-man -man talk about how scary it was in there, but they're still not going to talk about it and how he relates to the young autistic boy. Like all of that is so fully realized that we learn a lot about Alan Symes, even why he's writing the letter, you know, because he feels this guilt about lying to the aunt about what happened. And all of that just comes out so much better than, hey, there's a guy on the street who is a writer. Mm -hmm. There's just n nothing distinctive about him. Yeah, I'm starting to picture the Poplar Street residents as so two dimensional that they're like the silhouettes in a paper target for target practice. Like that, that's what King has stood up in this neighborhood is just these, these two dimensional characters who don't have any distinguishing characteristics from one another or from just generic person who will be shot before the end of the story. Yeah. And part of that may be intentional because again, Tack is creating this fake world that's based on TV shows, specifically old Western TV shows where Westerns are fairly much broad based things. There's the good guy. There's the stranger who comes into town. There's the evil bad guy who's twirling his mustache. Like mm. a lot of that is, is broad based. So maybe King's doing that intentionally, but I don't think so. I just think that it's just not as interesting of a story as the interstitials. And it's not only this interstitial, but the, what happened with the Hobarts in the last section we read that, that yep. seemed like a self-contained short story and the Johnny Marinville and his ex-wife and how that all came about with him writing. All of those are just they're the parts I'm going to remember about this book. I'm not going to remember the parts about how do we get Jim Reed's body over the fence. Yeah, and I think that's why maybe of all of the Poplar Street characters, not all of them are as two-dimensional as we're saying. The Johnny Marinville is more than just the, I guess, the trope of the, the author with an addiction problem. We also have Steve Ames, who we get that nice flashback story of his work history and, and his no-problem-man philosophy on life. Those two characters certainly feel more developed than most, if not all of the other Poplar Street characters, aside from Audrey herself, who she's the, the sole lens we have directly to Seth. We mm -hmm. don't really, we, to have any perspective on Seth, we need Audrey, the way that King has structured the story. So, but most of the other characters are just people with targets painted on their backs. 
Yeah. And so I think that brings us to our next topic, which is there's a line in the interstitial between the previous section and this one. Uh, it's a, a scene from the regulator's shooting script. And I think the last line is, we're going to wipe this town off the map. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be what King's doing here. And, you know, one of the other characters that I thought was going to be maybe a hero and maybe be a more fully developed character was Kali Entragian. And he takes some friendly fire and he's no longer with us in the story. And I, it, it was, I don't want to say King subverting expectations. This seems like Richard Bachman subverting expectations. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, we, we've covered all of the older Bachman books, um, original Bachman books. I don't know how to, yeah, I think how that's to parse it. Original. Uh, one of the things we talked about there was how they were so nihilistic and Richard Bachman, the author of the, the fictional version of King or the dark side of King was willing to go to places and take his characters and storylines in places that were, that were pretty depressing. And I think this is par for the course there where people like Kali and Trajan and Jim Reed dying in this story. Like what? A teenage boy and the cop who's surely going to be one of the heroes, right? right. He's going to help save the day. He's trained for this type of thing, or, or at least his training should make him one of the more helpful characters to get the non-combat trained people out of this mess. And nope, he's... They're, done. they're gone. He's gone. They're, they're both dead. And I think that this has Richard Bachman all over it. Yeah. And even the two characters who I would say would be the next two who would be ones I wouldn't think are going to die are Steve Ames and Johnny Marinville. They come pretty close in this section as well between the, the monsters and everything that are going on. Like they get caught up and injured and it's not exactly clear if they're going to make it either. Yeah. And at this point, and I think I've said this earlier, I don't know if I trust anybody's going to make it out alive. Yeah, it's like... Uh, it is like the regulators where they say, we're going to wipe this town off the map. And maybe that is the end game for Tech is that this town is going to be wiped off the map. And this section ends, of course, with the moto cops coming back for a an, another round of shooting and the characters in, in deep trouble. Yeah, so I was just talking about Bachman's nihilism and... I thought that leads us into another thing that I want to talk about from this section of the book, and, and that is people die hard. King expresses that sentiment, and he's done this in at least two or three of his books. This is a line that I've preserved in my, my old notebook of quotes, that Johnny had gleaned a gruesome fact this afternoon. People die hard, by and large, and when they went out, they left without much dignity. And it's the dying hard part that... Mm has always stuck with me and where King has said it in other books, it takes a lot to kill a person. And you might say, oh yeah, you know, you pull the trigger of the gun, boom, they're dead. Or you stab them and boom, they're dead. Or heck, you get hit by a car, boom, you're dead. But if you think about the amount of physical damage that those things cause a person, that's why they die. There are a lot of people who get shot and live. There are a lot of people who get stabbed and lived, get hit by cars and live because it takes a lot. So when somebody actually dies, they die hard they, because they actually got damaged enough for their body to stop working. Mm. And that's why that line sticks with me, because that is fundamentally true. And it's not something I think about, or maybe a lot of people think about in day-to-day -day life. No matter how much violence we see in our TV shows and movies, it's not really clearly expressed or realistically presented. No matter how much blood and gore is on the screen, 
I don't know that it's clear how hard it is to kill a person. Mm. You know, there's always that that one somebody will snap somebody's neck like it's as easy as tearing a piece of paper. And it isn't. It isn't easy to do that. So with all of these characters dying in this book and in this section of the book, it's a reminder of how nihilistic this story has been so far and likely will continue to be. Yeah, just an example of that dying hard is when Entragian gets shot, it's not clear at the end of of the last chapter if he's dead. Like they basically said his head snapped back. And, you know, at that point I was thinking, oh, well, certainly King's not going to kill him. We're going to find out that the shot grazed the top of his head or or hit, mm-hmm. so, hit so close that it just stunned him. But we learned that he's basically been scalped, right? Like his head is 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 destroyed and he is so confused and unclear of what has happened to him that he is crawling around on the ground and he starts headbutting the cactus that has materialized in this Ohio town. And he's just headbutting it because he's looking around for something. And then he grabs the other twin boy's hand and is trying to talk to him and, and tell him something. And he just, like you said, the, it's, it's a terrible death. It is a yeah. hard death. And King slash Bachman really brings that out. And then Jim Reed, of course, the the suicide is, a you know, pushed by Tack into playing with his emotions and, and setting him off the edge. But the lasting image of that is his girlfriend just wailing and screaming about what happened to her boyfriend. So again, just really adding it on, not just saying, oh, these people died, but really giving us the whole works here. Yeah. And, and not to belabor it unnecessarily, but when Jim Reed shoots himself... Johnny sees it. Yeah. He watches Jim Reed's head explode, basically. And that's another example of how hard it is to kill somebody. Mm. It's not just, you know, the sound of a gun happened and now he's dead. His head is destroyed by that bullet, just like Colleen Trangian's head is destroyed by that bullet. That's why they're dead. Yeah. And King keeps that level of, I guess, destruction here to remind the characters to drive home the point that people die hard. Now, I will say that King gives us at least a little bit of hope, maybe. So it's not as nihilistic as you may think. There's a tender scene between the other twin, Dave Reed, and his mother comforting each other. They're obviously both broken up. The mother has lost one of her sons, and you can't get any closer relationships than than twins. And there's this tender scene when the other people are bringing back Jim's body, but Dave and his mother are hugging each other. And so there's that little bit of of comfort. And she says something along the lines of like, I can't lose you as well. Like we need to be together. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to get you home. And then even when they get back to the houses, Brad and Johnny take this moment to start giggling because of everything they've seen and, and what's happened to them. They they realize that their emotions have overtaken them and they they start laughing. So it's terrible, but it's not all all Debbie Downer stuff here. There, there's there's a little bit of bright spots. Yeah, I could definitely see myself getting a little giggly, a little punchy in a moment like that. Definitely. Especially if you accidentally, uh, I guess, find yourself in that situation where <laughs> where Brad and, and Johnny are, are kind of making cracks to each other. Yeah. Well, speaking of cracks, one of the major cracks in the Dark Tower book are the thinnies that open up lending a passageway from our reality to another reality. And so that seems like a Dark Tower thinny. <laughs> what a segue that was, Jay. What a segue. 
So, Sean, did you find anything he's in this well, section of the book? Yeah, I mean, I'll go, I'll go with uh, a tried and true one. We find out that shortly before Christmas of 1995, Alan Symes retired and moved to Clearwater, Florida, where he died of a heart attack on September 19th, 1996. Ooh. There's that 19 again, Jay. Yeah, I'll buy it. He didn't have to die on it that day. King could have written any number on the page, but he wrote 19. Well, not any number. It would have to have been 1 through 30 because there's only 30 days in September. Like, he couldn't have written 42. The September 42nd wouldn't make much sense. <laughs> Usually, you're the pedant. And I thought <laughs> I was the pedant on the show. I could have chosen a different month and gone all the way up to 31. <laughs> That's true. Uh, how about you, Jay? Any Dark Tower thinnies for you? I found one. It's not quite as cut and dry as the thing you just mentioned, but there's a line, they were awful things, coyotes with heads like spiders, mountain lions with scorpions riding on their backs, bats with heads like babies. And we've got these descriptions of these sort of combo animals, these very scary things with another scary thing kind of growing out of it. Yep. And the bats with heads like babies and the spiders, uh... If we just had one more combo, we could have come up with Mordred. Probably, right? Right? Yeah, we're not too far from that. I figured that that was uh, close enough to call a thinny. I will allow it. Jay, we're making a special reoccurrence of yucking it up here due to some listener feedback we're going to get to in a second. But why don't you give us your yucking it up? All right, here's my yucking it up for this section of the book. A drop of half-congealed blood fell and struck Brad's cheek. It made him think of mint jelly, for some reason, and his stomach clenched like a hand in a slick glove. Mm. It's the slick glove that really got to me and why I wrote down that, that line. But there's my yucking it up. Yeah, I think the mint jelly, that's the piece for me. <laughs> yeah, you just don't like mint jelly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think between that and the half-congealed blood, so. Ugh. All right, well, as I alluded to, we got some listener feedback recently, and uh, I'll start off by mentioning Agent Doggett, who wrote a five-star review from Great Britain. And Agent Doggett said, Just the best. These two form a great quartet for anyone on a long journey. Well, thank you very much, Agent Doggett. Yeah, and it was uh, nice of Agent Doggett to take a break from his FBI duties and send us that nice iTunes review. Uh, you had to explain that to me because I was like, he wouldn't have been in the FBI. He's from Great Britain. It'd probably be MI6, wouldn't it? Then you explained who Agent Dogg it was, and I'm like, ah, I get it now. Thank you. Apparently, Sean has completely forgotten the X-Files. And we got another really nice five-star review in iTunes. This is from a listener in the U.S., Amy Clev 77 And Amy Clev 77 says, great podcast. I love this one. The hosts are interesting, introspective, and have thoughtful perspectives on the stories they're delving into. They manage to go into detail without ever being boring. I'm glad about that. <laughs> we cut all that out. <laughs> yeah, we cut out the boring. And they handle the problematic or sensitive issues that sometimes arise in the books with kindness and without snark or disrespect. I love the segment that discusses the gross passages and the Dark Tower Thinnies segment. Thank you for the time and effort that is being put into making this podcast. Thank you, Amy Clev 77 That is a very, very glowing review. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much. 
And speaking of the time and effort that is being put into making this podcast, if for whatever reason you'd like to support that in any way or reward us in any way, you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower and becoming a patron. You'll get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. All right, Sean, is it time to get into the segment of the show that we've all been waiting for? It is. Fun stuff. Fun stuff. All right. Why don't you kick us off? All right. Well, uh, as many of you may have deduced along the way, I'm a Northeast Ohio resident and I'm a fan of the sports teams here. And at one point, one of the characters notes that there's a baseball card back in the tree line. And the one that he sees is an upper deck card with Albert Bell with a bat coiled behind his head and a predatory look in his eye. And Albert Bell was a slugger for the Cleveland Indians in the mid 90s. And he definitely had a predatory look in his eye <laughs> most of the time. He is unfortunately known for assaulting a female reporter in the locker room. He also tried to run over a couple of children with his SUV on Halloween night in Cleveland once. So, um, yeah, Albert Bell is not somebody you would want to be on the wrong side of. Well, you know, the kids were probably trying to trick or treat after 9 p.m. And as everyone knows, Halloween is over at 9 o'clock. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> um, there is a wonderful line here about the artificial night sky and the distant surroundings. The perfectly round moon rising between the fangs of the black Crayola Mountains. And I thought it was really cool because Crayola even sounds like the name of a mountain range when mm. you use it this way. Yeah. And it's like, go north to the Crayola Mountains. <laughs> Uh, this line stood out for me just because the most recent Space Jam movie with LeBron James came out a couple weeks ago. And at one point, King talks about how somebody filled the McDonald's glass, upon which was a fading picture of Charles Barkley going one-on-one -on -one with the Tasmanian devil. And that's one of those things that probably would have faded from my memory, except for the fact that another Space Jam movie came out with another basketball player playing with Looney Tunes characters. Well, yeah, very timely. Oh, this was an interesting one. It seems that Stephen King is always worried about the library policeman. Based on this line, I kept thinking of how I had five or six library books back at my house and wondering who'd take them back and if someone charged my little bit of an estate for the overdue fines. That's Symes wondering what would happen if he died before returning his library books. That's a nice callback to the detail we said earlier about how Symes is fully realized. Mm. It's little lines like that. Like you get the guy who's like has a sense of responsibility, has a sense of frugality, like he doesn't want his estate to have to pay these overdue fines. Yeah. Just sort of wondering about like, well, what's going to happen to me after I'm gone? And even though he's faced with sort of an unspeakable horror in this mind, he's worried about the little things. And it's those details that make Alan Symes a fully realized character. Yeah. And the 90s were such a simpler time. He's not worried about his internet search history <laughs> or <laughs> anything like that. Nope. Just those library books. Just those library books. Well, my last one is a line that I think both you and I highlighted. And it, it was also in Syme's letter. It was, sound carries funny, ideas do too. And that's just a nice little line that I thought, I almost wish that that were more part of the theme of this book, like mm. as if the idea of tack had had been something that corrupted the neighborhood or something. And then th that would be a nice little line about that, but still nice. Yeah, I like that too. So our last section of the show is relatively new. It's the 
Sean and I mentioned something that is unrelated to The Dark Tower and Stephen King, but is interesting to us right now, and we'd like to share it with you. Sean, I'll start off. I have recently been re-watching a handful of the classic He-Man episodes. Ah. He-Man and the Masters of the Universe that were a uh, fun thing that I watched back when I was a kid, and I had a handful of the He-Man action figures. And I remember liking the show, but I didn't remember anything about the show mm. until I started rewatching these old episodes. And I got to say, they vary in quality from like utter trash to actually pretty good. <laughs> and the animation quality is they do a lot. They reuse so many sequences and they mm. do basically the same thing. And a lot of the characters are basically the same drawing, but with a different head and different color, <laughs> which is basically the, what the action figures were. Sure. So like anytime Skeletor walks across a room, it is the exact same animation sequence every single time. <laughs> and uh, I've been really getting a kick out of Skeletor. I think he's definitely the, the most entertaining character because he has that, that <laughs> kind of laugh and he's always getting into a scheme and he's always defeated so easily, even though he has so many powers. He's got magic to do so many things, and he never gets away with what he's trying to do. And I just talked way longer than I meant to about He-Man and Masters <laughs> of the Universe. I have so little to add to this because I barely remember watching it as a kid, and I have not revisited it since then. Oh, and I should also add that the reason why I took this dive into the old uh, episodes is because there's the new Netflix series. Mm. And I've now watched the first two episodes of that. I don't have any opinion on it yet, but so far the animation is okay. And does it have a lot of Skeletor sitting down? I still don't know what the heck is going to happen with Skeletor. He's probably sitting somewhere. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, All right. Well, my other worlds in these are that I just finished a John D. McDonald, Travis McGee book called The Long Lavender Look. I am trying to reread all of the Travis McGee books in 2021, and I'm about halfway through them all. And like you, I don't remember much about these. I, I read them all in the 90s, I think, hmm. and I have forgotten the plots of all of them. Like, I obviously remember the type of character Travis McGee is. And this one has really stood out for me as just being a really intriguing story. Uh, McGee gets accused of a murder falsely in a backwater county in Florida, and he has to figure out what really happened. And the characters are very well defined, and the story's interesting throughout. Um, it's one of the better ones in the series, I think. So that one's The Long Lavender Look by John D. McDonald. But you really can't go wrong with any of the Travis McGee books. Very good. All right, and with that, that'll be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media accounts are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we complete our coverage of The Regulators, reading chapters 12 and 13. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. Things, ex <laughs> Things escalated quickly, huh?
Oh yeah. Life goes on long after the thrill of leaving is gone. I think you're singing a different song. <laughs> I'm singing Jack and Diane, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, but we were just talking about when I see you smile. <laughs>